0: everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Home. We're back.
1: I'm Bernard Hickey with co-host Peter Bale. And Peter, how are you? Um, Well, actually, Bernard, I've had a very slightly grumpy day. I seem to have walked into several doors and been surrounded by people. And I I was thinking about this. I actually really quite like Leo Malloy because he's so ghastly. And he's a kind of, you know, he's a kind of Lord of the Rings extra with his own pub, you know. And then I was thinking also, and you you may have noticed my background, I was thinking of your mate Ufendel, Ah, Sam. Sam. Yeah, yeah. Who was a kind of Easter Easter Island character if the Easter Island people or Rapa Nui people worshipped assholes. They would have, they would have built built uh, moais to look like him. In fact, they did basically. So I thought the, my backdrop today would be quite good for you, Bernard, which is my flat in Dunedin uh, when I didn't go to university <laughs> to to just show you just how trashed uh, a flat could be. Ah. Uh, and and um, uh, you know, if I can point out that in in this flat, you know, we would have been lucky to have any women come into it, let alone let alone leave their underwear behind.
0: Yeah, no, I'm. Um... I'm looking forward to you uh, trying to get into the national uh, candidate selection school, Peter.
1: Well, absolutely. I well, I was. Yeah, well, I'm actually a bit upset that that Malloy didn't, is, has pulled out of the Auckland Meralty thing because I had I thought I was a dead cert for his chief of staff, actually.
0: Yeah. Well, that would have been because I quite like
1: boxing, you know, and and you know, yeah, you know, I can I can deliver the odd low blow myself, as ah. it were.
0: Yeah, no, no, it's it's a sad thing to see Leo Malloy go fr- from a purely ratings point of view. I mean, I'm guessing Peter, you might have been one of those um, editorial executives in America who secretly wanted Trump to win when the presidency. Uh, well, funny enough,
1: when I was an editorial executive in America, I did say to the most experienced person on my staff, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, rather pompous fellow. Um, you know, is there a chance that he could win? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> Hillary's got it sewn up. And I will, you know, that was one of the best, I mean, I, I'm not meaning to criticise that person, although he did most deserving of criticism, but, you know, th- the, the idea that the idea that Trump could do it was was just so far-fetched to that kind of inside the Beltway group. But Bernard, do, do, do you realise what the scenery is behind me? You, you know where it really is? It isn't my, because A, I didn't go to university, B, I certainly didn't go to Dunedin, and um, I'm way too tidy to have flats like this. It's the, it's no, the, young, no, it's the, it's the young one's kitchen ah. after after Neil, after Neil blew up a uh, meal of lentils and destroyed the kitchen, uh, leaving Rick with a silent P uh, and Adrian Edmonds' Edmund, character, who I can't remember who it was. But there'll be a few people here who are old enough to remember the young ones. And I one. was so struck by the young ones with your mate Uffendel this week.
0: Yeah, and maybe we'd have to imagine who Uffendel
1: might have been. There well, was I that... think he's definitely Rick with a silent P. Oh, no, no, he's more... Because there was the smooth chap who did Mike. actually get to bed. Mike, 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 the little short guy who did get to to um, bed people. But, yeah, I don't know Uffendel. Uffendel's a whole different character. I don't think any yeah. of the characters in there went to private school. No, Not okay. even Alexis Ale. <laughs>
0: Alexis gee, um and speaking of uh, Trump and predictions uh, I remember I think on the who, um before January 6 maybe or maybe we were talking once and and you made the comment that um Trump wouldn't give up and there was a potential for a coup and I Absolutely. I, well we're I,
1: there. And yeah I I pooed me I, rub- I it poo-pooed You poo-pooed me was a nice way of saying you rubbish me yeah yeah and- no, well, I was right, Bernard, and and so often. And what I find, I, I put this into my spin-off thing this week, which you can share, and, and I think also people really do need to get the North and South this week to read my excellent piece on uh, NATO and Jacinda Ardern. But um, the the Washington Post today is reporting to I me. Mean, just sometimes with Trump, you, th- you think it cannot get any lower. But this week, Maggie Haberman, who he described as a maggot, but whom he has used as a channel for the last six or seven years. Maggie Herman at Herberman in The New York Times and in her book has pictures of um, the toilet uh, a toilet from a Trump visit overseas and Trump's toilet in the White House with pieces of paper shredded in the fortunately there's nothing else in there and they've all got his sharpie marker. it's just grotesque and of course this was one way to dispose of official documents but we now know that he was keeping several boxes of of official documents at Mar-a-Logo and we now know it would appear from sources to the Washington Post that they were relating to nuclear matters. It's It's unclear whether they were uh, top secret. I mean, well, this is another thing. Top secret is these things were way more than top secret. They were super, super duper secret, you know. And he had them um, in his garage, unlocked. Well, <laughs> possibly. But I don't think we quite know. I mean, there, there was also the story that he had an emerald necklace. I think it was that he'd been given by the Saudis. You know, but you, you can't. You just who knows. But the the it does appear as though the uh, items that the um, uh, Department of Justice, uh, which runs the FBI, were quite keen to go and retrieve, were relating to nuclear matters. Now it's unclear whether they were uh, sensitive about the US's own arsenal or whether they were sensitive about. Uh, allies or non-allies, but I, I was struck to think again about that totally ludicrous meeting with um, the, uh, so, the Soviet, and he said so, the Russian ambassador to the, to, um, the United, United States, Kisilyak and Lavrov, who couldn't believe their own luck to be invited into the Oval Office by Trump that time, and, you, and, and Trump at that moment, if you recall, revealed, you know, exposed some secret, I forget, it was about, it was about intelligence in Syria. And you just saw them kind of swallow and smile and go, uh huh. <laughs> so, but but I was listening to a very good piece in the Economist, uh, uh, Economist podcast this afternoon, saying that Trump has politically, of course, gained from this. He's also gained from declaring the fifth yesterday in the in the investigation into his financial affairs, despite having said that only only mobsters um, ever ever had to declare the fifth on the grounds of incriminating. But he is one hundred and five percent on top of the American political agenda, to the point also where some lunatic uh, went into the Cincinnati office of the FBI and oh, tried yeah. to shoot them all today and fortunately came away shot himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try not to get too focused on it because you just get exhausted watching it. And and you're right, even though you want to look away, thinking, oh, oh it, it's it so get, sensational. It can't, yeah, it, can't.
1: it can't get any It can't get out. any more crass and it can't get any more horrid.
0: But and it gets more crass is- and
1: more horrid every day. And
0: and I hear that um, civil war was one of those trends uh, yep. at the top on on Twitter after this thing, and the uh, Fox type press went completely over the top and ballistic and um,
1: declared this was an, an outrage. Uh, I wonder. Well, everybody has you've got DeSantis, who's the sort of Trump 2.0, and this lunatic. I mean, you've got you've got the other guy who said um, Bra- Kevin Brown, I think, it's who said. Um, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, who said uh, that Merrick Garland, the uh, the Attorney General of the United States, who, if you recall, was the person who Boris uh, who uh, Boris Wilson, who Barack Obama tried to get appointed uh, as as, um, as right, a justice yeah. to the to the Supreme Court, but is now the Attorney General, um, uh, which is good. Chardon for it. The guy who went in, or allegedly, the person who went into the Cincinnati office of the FBI today and came out dead, uh, wrote on Truth Social the Trump. Uh, social network allegedly, or at least under his name, people. This is it. I hope a call to arms comes from someone better qualified. But if not, this is your call to arms from me. You know, this is lunacy, and it's being mm-hmm. led by the led by the Republicans. I, I was also very amused, well, appalled, but amused as well to see Nigel Farage, who, if we're thinking, I was just trying to think if we if 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 Malloy is some sort of you know. Um, Gollum and uh, Offendell is, is a is a moai for assholes. I mean, what what is what is um, Nigel Farage? You know, he he is he's a golf club bore turned into a, turned into a politician. <laughs> but he said, you know, this was the this is the United. This shows the deep state exists.
0: It is just a weird time in our political scene. We've been watching it for thirty or forty years. And, and it just just gets nuttier and nuttier
1: and nuttier. Yeah, well, and I'm just, as you know, because, I, because I've moved here, although I was, I was very amused when I commented on your uh, excellent piece on, th- just we're sort of digressing slightly or segueing slightly today, but the when you wrote your excellent piece on Three Waters this week, I made some remark about it, and somebody said, oh, just go back to England, the inflation's yeah. much worse there. And, of course, I live here now, so... If you
0: <laughs> It is true. Inflation headed for thirteen percent. In uh, yeah, oh, in the and UK. but also
1: Liz, Liz Truss is going to sort it out, and so will Rishi Sunak. The the fiasco that's going on in the UK starts to make Boris Johnson look good every day, every day of the week. Oh, but there was an absolutely fabulous headline today, which I was going to use as our skateboarding dog, but it's uh, it's in the Metro Metro newspaper, and it says <laughs> 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 bold headline: PM turns up for meeting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious yeah you so, love it. what do we want to talk about you've got some guests today Bernard I was yes I, I was I was yeah you because know, you know Anne French and I we, we nearly hijacked the podcast list last week and just went I just went jumped wild out. without you yeah yeah you should have yeah it yeah. yeah, was nearly yep 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 uh yeah go go but, rogue yeah um, exactly well we go rogue several times you know we have gone rogue sometimes and um yeah but, no uh, we should
0: definitely do that well this week we've got yeah Jason Young, who is an associate professor from Victoria University, who studies uh, China relations and in particular, Taiwan, Um, big week in the Taiwan Strait, Um, touch wood, it it hasn't gone nuclear there, but uh, certainly we're trying to keep an eye on it. He's been watching it. Uh, And Jason's joining us, actually. Um, Fantastic. I mean, he's on time.
1: Actually, he's ahead of time.
0: No, it's it's really great to see. Does he know anything about housing? No, no. Uh, well, maybe he maybe he does. Uh, he looks like he's in a house, which is great. Yeah, it's good yeah to but see it's Jason. probably some
1: cold, icy, cold Wellington hellhole with sewage running down its frontage, well, isn't he?
0: Well, no, or it's just about to fall down a slope. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, I thought I, I thought that was very amusing. The big slips in um, Karori this week, where the woman from the Geological Survey was saying, "Yeah, you know, well, there has been a lot of rain, and you know, what, what? I mean, this is the this is the carnage that happens when you slice and dice." You know, incredibly difficult environments in New Zealand, whether it's well, farmland yeah. or, or the hilltops of Wellington. You know? Yeah, no, Wellington is a strange it, place to have. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's great to see you, Jason. Uh, and later on, we're going to have, um, in place of Chloe Swarbrick, who is, uh, I understand, helping to rescue some dolphins on Waiheke Island, which has to be some sort of uh, record for a cliched green activity. Um, and, and so we have Julian Genta on, um, no doubt also from, from Wellington. J- Jason, it's lovely to, to have you here to talk about what's happened in Taiwan and to try to unpack it for, for people who have been watching it from a distance and have seen this thing
1: blow up, so to speak. Well, that's a phrase that I, yeah, I don't want to use Seeing this thing get tense.
0: No. And, and Jason, can you tell us why is this weird state of being where a country is a country and not a country, and China gets very, very upset when the Speaker of the House of Representatives happens to land in that country. Can you, can you give us a sense
2: of why it's so touchy? Um, okay, uh, hello, hello, Bernard and um, uh, Peter, uh, lovely to be Hi. here. And I mean, I'll try, I'll try to give you a sense of that. Um, as you would imagine with these types of issues, it's, it's pretty complicated, um, but if we go back, Uh, Not too far, just to the Qing Dynasty. uh, We see that (laughs) Taiwan uh, was incorporated into the Qing Dynasty uh, and then was ceded to Japan in the First Sino-Japanese War. And then at the end of World War II, it was returned to China. Now, in between, the Qing Dynasty was overthrown and the Republic of China was established. And so, therefore, Taiwan was returned to China, which at that time was the Republic of China, Uh, But then in the Civil War, the communists defeated the Republic of China and established the People's Republic of China. And so the ROC or Republic of China forces fled to Taiwan uh, and have been there ever since. Uh, And so therefore, on Taiwan, they say that their constitution is the Republic of China constitution. And so at one level, it's, it's, it's part of the civil war between the communists and the nationalists, which has yet to be resolved. But then there's <clears throat> other levels to it as well. So you in the 90s, the people on Taiwan uh, decided that they weren't that happy with having mm. um, the, the Kuomintang or the, the nationalist government. Uh, and so they slowly, through protest movements, through rebellions, through the establishment of what's known as the Deng Wai movement or the uh, opposition party movement, they had a democratic transition um, following decades of economic growth. Uh, and so they democratized, and so now it's not just between the communists and the nationalists, but then you throw in mm, a whole bunch Democrats. of other political parties. Jason,
1: did you know any of this before you read my thing in the spinoff last week? Because basically, I said all of this, and I didn't have to go to university <laughs> for a decade to. I, I didn't have to go to university for a decade to know all this, you know.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we it's best to work at a university I, rather than and, go there for a day. Oh yeah, good idea. And I and I got
1: I got I got just <laughs> how sexy Madam Chiang Kai Shek was in was in was as a you know in my piece as well. So I got you know you you've left out the sexy bits.
2: I have yes no a I'm routine to be boring academic. Um, but but basically what that means is that there's there's sort of a number of different issues. One is the civil war, and so for the PRC it's it's existential. Mm. Yeah, basically their claim. Uh, and the claim of the Chinese communist party is that they liberated china and they are the inheritors of what they would say is 5000 years but we'll just call it 2000 years hmm. of dynastic history um but there's still the republic of china on taiwan and so that is is a big issue for them it's problematic it's
1: very so gr- so, wh-
2: so so
0: why haven't the chinese invaded before because they must have had lots of opportunities, and Taiwan must have been very weak militarily at some point.
2: Um, no, Taiwan's always been very heavily armed. Uh, obviously, right. it was an important part of the um, Cold War. Uh, so, when
1: this is Republic why Bernard China... usually sticks to housing and the economy. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's a fair question.
2: <laughs> Taiwan's also very good on housing, um, you know, million people. Um, I was never hot or cold. In a, in a Taiwanese house. I used to, I used to live there in, in Taipei and in Taichung. Um, so, so, and it's not easy to invade across a, a strait. Mm. Um, and so that's, mm. and also, you know, the idea would be, particularly now, that they would rather not invade, um, that there hopefully could be a peaceful resolution to, to the cross straits crisis. And then, of course, you know, we, we, we have to add on to that the, the geopolitics. Um, now,
0: now, what I also can't quite work out is, is what the Chinese hope to achieve by rattling their sabres and doing all these drills and, you know, mucking around on the median line and firing ballistic missile, missiles over Taiwan when they clearly don't want to invade. Is this, what's this all about?
2: Well, it doesn't certainly doesn't look like a strategy for winning hearts and minds mm-hmm. uh, of the people on Taiwan. Um, I, I would interpret it more as deterrence. So they're they're basically their interpretation is that the visit from Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, was a number of one of a number of things that the U.S. has done and that um, the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, Taiwan, have done, which slowly changed the status quo, moving. Taiwan more towards autonomy or independence, and so therefore they're, they're trying to create a red line, uh, mm. make it very clear to the Taiwanese, and also make it very clear to, to the United
1: States. Jason, haven't they also gained a tremendous amount of knowledge this last 10 days about what it would take to do it as well?
2: Yeah, I, I imagine I mean, they It's they been would... a
1: brilliant exercise, hasn't it? Um, Militarily. Uh, mili-
2: um, we're not sure I'd say it's been brilliant, but it's certainly been... Um, uh, a big bang, so to speak, and it's certainly been a lot of missiles. I think perhaps the new bit has been the efforts to do blockades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so looking to blockade Taiwan. So, you know, if there was heaven forbid, uh, in the future some effort uh, militarily to to take Taiwan, um, then it would of course involve a blockade. Uh, in and, and
1: hasn't Jason hasn't Jason also the the Americans and and because I'm what I'm expecting now to happen. You know, being a deep you know considered analyst of all this as I just you know look out at Watchman Island and think, you know would, how would I invade Watch, Watchman Island and Auckland? Um, well, the we're, going to be, we're going to be running we and I mean we actually, but Australians and Americans will be in the Ta- straits of Taiwan very soon, won't they, doing their doing their normal rights of passage, uh, you know claiming international rights to the Taiwan Strait international waters very soon, won't they? Or because it seems to me they've been very sensible, to be quite quiet about this so far and not to do anything more provocative than sending Pelosi in.
2: Yeah, so Anthony Blinken um, clearly stated that um, he thought that the Chinese response was uh, disproportionate to what, mm-hmm. what had happened and that um, they had sent a Speaker of the House back in the 90s uh, and and, you know, they were overreacting. Um, but that wouldn't it be just
1: imagine how different America would be if Newt Gingrich had stayed there. <laughs> but carry on. Sorry, I, I don't want to digress. Yes. I do, I do um, want to digress, but carry on, please.
2: So, so, so basically, um, they also stated that it doesn't change their position, hmm. um, that they have a one China policy. Uh, and important to note policy, not principle. Uh, they have a one China policy, and they will continue to have unofficial <laughs> relations with Taiwan and also the U.S. military will continue to operate in areas that it considers to be international mm. waters. Mm. But they also said that they would not send an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait at this point because that would
1: be... Because they, they might lose it. Yeah, true, true, true. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want to see a demonstration of the hypersonic hypersonic um, anti, anti-ship anti missiles just yet.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the really um, concerning piece for, for all countries about these types of... Um, uh, events is that the risk of miscalculation or something actually happening uh, increases, uh, and therefore it could easily get out of control. Uh, so I think it is the right move not to send an aircraft carrier at the moment.
1: Mm. Can I ask a question about the New Zealand perspective on this? And, uh, again, Nanaya Mahuta and, and um, Jacinda, I don't have come in for a lot of criticism for being too soft on China and trying to play it both ways. My impression is actually that they've both been incredibly subtle and very, very clever about this so far to protect New Zealand's interests while also making clear that they have differences with China. But this makes it a tad more difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess we'd call it a classic lose-lose situation for New Zealand. Um, you know, whatever position you take, there there will be um, repercussions. Um, and I think, you know, calling for de-escalation, calling for dialogue, basically saying... Uh, that, that both sides of the Taiwan Strait mm-hmm. need to talk to each other and try to resolve this issue, and countries shouldn't be provocative, is is the right point. Um, I, I would also suggest that you know New Zealand government positions on China have um, been carefully calibrated, but yeah. they've been increasingly critical over the
1: last three four years as well. But they haven't done anything stupid, have they? You know, they haven't been over aggressive. They haven't joined um, AUKUS. I mean, are they being too subtle? Are they being too clever? Well, and they're I
2: going mean, to have to choose sides at some point. Um, so so I mean, my view on that you have to choose sides mm. is that um, it, it's not one big decision, that there's mm. lots of little decisions. Um, and when it comes to every little decision, should New Zealand join the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, even though that was a Chinese initiative? Yeah, sure. I think that's a good idea. It's an international organization. Should New Zealand support the American-led um, uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework? Sure, that's also a good idea. What happens when you have a sort of a clash? Yeah. Um, what position should the New Zealand government take? Mm. Uh, should be, I believe, should be based on a series of already thought out principles, yeah. which include what is our position on human rights? What is our position on international law? What is our position on this, that, and the other? Uh, and so if we take it all the way back to the, the Taiwan issue, it depends what happens. <clears throat> you know, If there is an aggressive action, from China, then, just as with Russia invading Ukraine, you would expect the New Zealand government to take absolutely,
3: a
1: stronger absolutely. Absolutely. Do, do you think? The, but when you mentioned that sort of, I, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, being like all journalists, we want things to be sort of more decisive and clear sometimes. And of course, I, I do think Warwick Francis and, and our chat was correct that there is a lot about this about not losing any face in the run up to the to the November Congress. But New, New Zealand hasn't been doing a bad job, has it, in assembling that sort of collection of events china china obviously china knows what nanaya Mahuter and jacinda think about the uyghurs they know what they think about being more assertive means i mean i just i mean i didn't nearly bore myself to death because it was a it was a it was a really interesting task to read all of jacinda's speeches to the Lowy institute the chatham house and uh the other one that she gave at that time including the white house what the white house thing with biden for my excellent column in North and South, which you know is probably running out fast now, but um, you know that that collection of subtle there was—it's a very—I thought that was a very subtle collection of very effective diplomatic messages. But but the thing is, did I'm you curious. sorry? What did Jason think? Does That's he agree actually. with me or
2: not? <laughs> um, no, I, I do, um, but it all depends <laughs> on what the problem is and what the issue is, and sometimes yeah. subtlety is not going to cut it.
0: Mm. And, and I wonder, too, uh, we all assume that everything's going to work and no one's going to accidentally shoot each other. And there was a particular case a few months ago where an Australian uh, surveillance plane, uh, in fact, one of the Poseidons, which we're just about to get one of those as well, uh, it um, had a Chinese uh, jet go in front of it and release a whole bunch of... Chefs. Um, sure chaff which mm. you know could have caused some sort of incident and there have been incidents in the past mm-hmm. how, how do how do you think uh the, there's a risk of everyone rattling their sabers in the same place and accidentally pushing the wrong
2: button well that's why these these types of issues with 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 taiwan and the pelosi visit mm. and the raised tensions and then china getting into exercises and and doing blockades and and also the raised rhetoric um that's why these these issues are are so dangerous um, uh, you know, some some wars start in this way, uh, mm. and you know, heaven forbid that we do see that type of conflict of Taiwan. Particularly... Do, you, do you think
1: her? Do you think her trip had any benefit whatsoever that you can see now quantify? Um, so,
2: I mean, if you read her, was it Wall Street Journal or Washington Post um, mm-hmm. article mm-hmm. outlining yep. why she went? It was basically to say that um, um, that American Congress uh, supports the people of Taiwan. Um, and I, I think, you know, that message was was read loud and clear. And you can look in, if you if you follow the Taiwanese media and follow how people in Taiwan have been reacting to the visit, uh, they saw it as very positive. Um, and they also saw um, Beijing's actions and the PLA's actions for likely what it is, which was a bit of rat, uh, saber rattling um, and just an exercise. And they didn't, overreact to Beijing's reaction.
0: Yeah. Just just stepping back a bit, um, Jason, uh, as we finish up here, one of the sort of big ideas in this strategic competition between a rising China and a wobbly America is that we're getting into a classic Thucydides trap where it's... you just say that again? Thucydides' trend. Nice work. (laughs) That that we get ourselves into this position almost of an inevitable war between the rising power and the weakening power. What what do you think about this idea that some people are talking about a war as being not only
2: possible, but even probable? Um, So... I guess I wouldn't be in my job if I thought that war was was always, you know, we're just predestined to have this type of war and this type of conflict. Um, I think that that humans and, and countries, even small countries, have agency, um, and we should be doing everything that we can to avoid that type of outcome, because it would be truly horrific. Um, mm. You know, the two largest e- economies in the world going toe for toe um, would drag... And,
1: and sort of pointless, people. because because they both need each other. They, they do, but... <laughs>
2: I guess if you look back at, at the old sort of studies of international relations, they would see that, you know, to move from one world order to another world order, which arguably we're doing, sometimes there is that need to have that 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 toe-for-toe um, um, uh, fight. And so, you know, the challenge that we have is that how can we create a new type of international order um, that's a little bit different to the post-World War II mm-hmm. order, um, but that reflects the changing uh, dynamics in the world, including... Uh, making space for countries like China and India and international organizations. Um, and it's so you know, it's going to be challenging. So what, what sort of things can we do? You say
0: we've got some agency. Obviously we're not going to be in a position to solve the thing by ourselves, but we also have to potentially try to reduce some of our risks if the saber rattling turns hot. So what should New Zealand be thinking about? What should both parties be, you know, strategizing about?
2: Um, well, with politi- is politically, but in, in the business community, um, obviously the the biggest thing that they can do is to ensure that they don't have um, too much exposure to one market um, or to one particular uh, distributor in Asia. I mean, I think that's well established now. And 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 you know, if you're in the business community and you're not factoring in risk, uh, geopolitical risk, then you need to think again. Um, The second thing I think politically what New Zealand can do is to continue its position, which is basically um, we want to talk and Mm. we want to try to resolve these issues. I think that is very, very valuable. Um, And to work in coordination with a number of countries on particular issues. Uh, So, for example, you know. Have you been talking to Robert Patman? This
1: is his great idea as well.
2: Sensible stuff. It's good.
1: Yeah. No, I think. Yeah, it's, I, mean, well, I mean, I think. I think Jacinda Ardern taking on a sort of world government role where she becomes global diplomat is absolutely brilliant. My brother would kill me, but I think it's a yeah. brilliant idea.
2: Good on I, you. I'll just end by saying, um, but I think it's even more challenging than the classic liberal international view of sort of liberal institutions because these countries are not liberal, um, and so mm-hmm. it means mm-hmm. engaging with countries where you know values, not just interests, but also values. Uh, we we have have challenges on so mm. so I think that is going to be really challenging
1: and there's going to be a few tough decisions that will need to be made. And yes, Jason, just I ask, to- can I ask I, you an economic question here, which, which you will know very well, having lived in, in Taiwan? Um, semiconductors, TSMC, you know China, Taiwan makes you know vast percentage of the most important, largest, most complicated, sophisticated semiconductors. China desperately needs that. There is no way that an invasion is a good way to take to, to to form any sort of future partnership with TSMC in the semiconductor industry, isn't it? I mean, th- th- that's got to be a way to actually to use that positively rather than negatively.
2: I, I can't see an invasion, um, which would no doubt be quite protracted, uh, being an effective way to gain mm. access mm. to high-tech semiconductors. Um, uh, and of course, you know um, a lot of America. At the moment, the chips bill is actually trying to pull the semiconductor industry um, away from Asian markets yeah. and, and bring it back to the United States as well. Uh, and China is mm-hmm. investing a lot in in trying to create its own capacity. And I think that's the way that it needs to go. Fifty-seven billion dollars.
1: Did you see? Did you see this week that they've arrested the three leading people running the running the big tech, the uh, what's whatever that's called, big the big project to um, to turn China into a semiconductor powerhouse? So that's going well
2: work in progress, I think, maybe yeah. all that. Thank yeah. you,
1: You've been super intelligent on <laughs> thank this. Thank you very week, much, which, Jason. Is, which is a rare thing on the show unless Robert's appearing. But thank you. <laughs> I, I
0: do
2: apologise. <laughs>
0: no, no, you, you did fantastic. Thank you so much. And now it's time to um, welcome into the conversation uh, Julie Ann Genter, who I'm just um, bringing in as a panellist. And uh, Julianne is coming up. Some of uh, our regular listeners will um, have remembered a few months ago Julianne was was on. And we really enjoyed the chat. Uh, Julianne, thank you very much for coming on. We uh, for those who were who were thinking it was going to be Chloe, we had a, a deal on earlier with Chloe, but she's rescuing dolphins, so this is oh, important.
1: So she says.
0: No, no, I, there, I've seen the picture.
1: I, I reckon she's having gin, gins and tonics on a bloody super yacht somewhere between. Nah. It's, what <laughs> Auckland, it's what Auckland <laughs> MPs do. They just, you know, they come in. Actually, she's probably having a drink with Leo Malloy as we speak. I,
0: I gotta feel that would be. Or, that, actually, that would be entertaining to watch. Yes, I would, it would. Or, I would actually, actually
1: she may well be boxing Leo Malloy down at ah. HQ. Although I noticed that his, his place is closed for refurbishment at the moment. Um, yes but I also I also yeah yeah no I won't go there further steady on hi Julianne how are you
3: hello how are you
1: your house looks fantastically tidy and not at all like a sort of Dunedin sewer
3: oh um well uh, it's all off camera yeah
1: yeah (laughs) I do
3: have two young children and we've had six weeks of at least four different illnesses so uh it's not it's not yeah, but you don't have energy. you don't
1: have graffiti sprayed everywhere and say this is just a shitty house so it's going to be shitty like um, mr offendale uh
3: no i mean i did live in a punk rock squat when i was like 18 or of 19, course you, did. Of course um, course you um, did in the northern californian mountains um <laughs> but you know we we kept it in pretty tidy condition considering uh it was an old victorian that
1: sounds like a, a, an episode out of thomas pinchon's um vineland
3: it was the sort of thing where, like, D, in the winter, yeah. you had to break the ice in the
0: toilet in the morning. Uh, ah. No, no, this is this sounds like Dunedin a little bit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think it was colder than Dunedin, to be yeah.
0: fair. Uh, lovely to to see you. And I'm very keen to find out some more about um, the demands, requests, um, carefully worded letters being sent by all of the parties except for Labour to a uh, Grant Robertson and uh, to Labour saying, uh, we'd like an inquiry in the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee into the financial response in COVID. Can you tell us a bit more about what's what's going on there? Because usually, when everyone um, says we'd quite like to look at this thing, something happens, but it, it's not happening at the moment.
3: Well, you know, last time I came on, which was a few months Ooh. ago, I think uh, we were talking about the Greens call for an inquiry and we thought that uh, my colleague Chloe who is absolutely out there saving dolphins right now and I'm sorry she's not here and I'd be happy to be there in her stead um but um I'm in Wellington so she's saving the dolphins and uh she called she did this work while I was on maternity leave and she's our member on the finance and expenditure mm-hmm. select committee as well and she was I think one of the absolute first political voices to be calling for this inquiry and since then uh, act and the national party and I think to party Maori we're always probably open to it but it's just been very recent that nationals jumped on this bandwagon um I mean they probably see a bit of a political opportunity and I would say that's what is stopping the government from having such an inquiry is they are concerned that it will just be an opportunity to focus negatively on uh, their actions and that will be used as a sort of political tool by National especially and perhaps ACT um, just to question their credibility.
0: What do you think about the the politics of what National have done? Because on the face of it, it seems sensible. You've got a central bank that... um, uh, printed $55 billion, it's been blamed for contributing to the inflation pressures. Um, Mind you, it was also uh, doing it at the same time as every other central bank was also printing money. But um, one of the risks for national here, isn't it, that, that by focusing on this, they're also going to be focusing on who were the winners from the COVID financial response of the government, who actually were mostly national voters or potential national voters.
3: Uh, that's an interesting point and i'm not sure national thought through the consequences and i think unfortunately labor the labor government are probably being overly defensive and not allowing the inquiry Um, so i think probably we'd be better off if if they did it and we could actually see what the outcomes were Um, but unfortunately now that they've been refusing it they probably think uh they don't want to Do you turn on that? And this seems like the sort of thing that if it had been John Key's national government of a a few terms back, they probably would have said, no, we're not gonna have an inquiry like that and just tried to shut it down and it wouldn't have cost them much politically. So I'm guessing Labour will be thinking that's the approach they have to take. Julian,
1: why doesn't it stay just inside a good uh, one of the select committees? Do you you need a separate inquiry? The select committee
3: won't agree to it. Mm. Um, because Labour have the numbers on the Select mm. Committee, uh, just like they have on the Transport Committee, where I'm supposed, you know, I'm Deputy Chair, doesn't really mean anything. Um, so, you know, we I'd be happy for Auckland Light Rail and Let's Get mm. Money Moving to mm. come in and question them. And, of course, NAC, uh, National Act would be happy for that too, but the Labour members are saying, no, 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 don't need an inquiry now.
0: I mean, the idea, of
3: course, ministers aren't supposed to tell select committee members what to do, but they do. I mean,
0: is, is this is this normal that um, when a party has dominance of the parliament, that they um, tell their select committee uh, members to, you know, serve the interests of the government politically? Because there have been times in the past when maybe when the numbers were tighter, that a select committee would bring in someone who might say something quite critical of the government. Is it particularly bad this time?
3: I think, I think no, I mean, I think it started definitely when National was in government under John Key. This was my experience of select committees. I think prior to that, um, you know, in, in the Clark years, um, there were more mixed numbers on the select committee because there were more parties and um the numbers of the select committee were slightly different as well so i think it was less the case that um the government of the day controlled most of the select committees um but under national they did most of them there are some select committees where they don't have the numbers but they'll tend to make that an inconsequential committee and uh certainly with labor's majority they um they really dominate most of the select committees and i think it's the... unfortunate i mean you want yeah. But th- this has been a a trend I feel over the past few decades, yeah. maybe in New Zealand and other countries, that um, th- it seems like there's less bipartisan support for good process and more doing whatever it takes to manage the optics uh, in order to do. Be able do, to cover. do you
1: find? Do you, do you is, do you think that this is just the run up to the election, or is it more general? Because... Well,
3: it's always the run up to the election yeah. with a three year term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately. You really don't have much time. And maybe maybe we would be better off. It's interesting and more mature MMP democracies in Europe. Most of them have moved to five-year terms. Mm. And maybe that does give them more time for negotiations, for setting up government, for doing things.
0: Because it's, it's one of the few um, backstops we've got. You know, we don't have a second house. We don't have an activist court or some sort of quite prescribed constitution to, you know... Um, Keep people under control. Part of the reason we brought in MMP was to introduce some element of a element of a guardrail to stop a, you know, a dominant prime minister completely, you know, f- pushing th- things through parliament. And that that aspect of of having accountability through a select committee process, as we're seeing with the January six hearings uh, in in the United States, can be really important. Is is there anyone trying to? know, reform a parliamentary process or somehow um, build some system in there so that we don't get this obsession with optics, which means that often the select committees become rubber stamping or um, empty chambers.
3: Yeah, I think there's probably a few voices on the fringe and definitely the Greens would have uh, a policy of wanting to improve our electoral system and improve democracy. Um, Although I don't know if we have any specific bills or, or on that question of how you know ours is more around the number of parliamentarians, the pur- pur- preserving the por- proportionality as the population grows, dropping the threshold so there's more opportunities for additional parties to get in, um, and you know implementing the other recommendations of the MMP review, but I think uh, a larger question around. A constitution is something that the Greens would support having, mm. and whether that would lead to other institutions, like you know, bringing back something like an upper house or the way select committees work. I, I could. I mean, I think the Greens would support that, but I don't think, I don't think there's broad appetite for that. Um, I don't see a discussion, and I think this has to do with the news cycle and kind of the superficiality of um, the discourse in the news. Um, and oh. perhaps, like, I mean, maybe with civics education, this will get better, I'm not. It's, there's no mm. guarantee. Oh, we just
0: need to get everyone watching the Hoon every Friday afternoon. I think I think this Speaking is... Speaking of civics is, education. education,
3: yeah. Yeah. So
0: the, the other thing I was very interested in this week, uh, Julianne, was the announcement uh, and the release of the discussion, promotion of reshaping streets, which is a, a broad push from Waka Kotahi, to uh, look, give local authorities the power to start changing street layouts, perhaps in a faster, more comprehensive way than they have so far, so that you can, uh, instead of having um, the roads being completely for cars or um, the sides of the roads completely for car parks, that you see a lot more uh, reconfiguring of parks and roads for walking and cycling and green space which broadly um, urban activists and town planners are keen on the idea of having more um, human centered um, roads and public spaces.
3: Well, I don't know if all town planners are on side with that, but <laughs> unfortunately, well, this, this is as, a, as, a, as a qualified town planner.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, this is, this is interesting because we're in, in the process now of um, finalizing candidates and mayoral candidates for elections. And one of the risks here is that this reshaping streets proposal, uh, which I see um, has already been um, accused by National as as a war on cars and things like, for example, the proposal to make it harder to drop kids off with your SUVs. Outside the school has been not only
1: SUVs though. They can, you can drop them off in an electric car, just fine, can't you? Is that well? I, no, I don't I'm know. kidding. Of course it's not, but, <laughs> but it's a bloody good idea. Yeah, yeah. but
0: there there is an there is a potential here for a backlash in these council elections um, against this sort of reshaping streets. What's what's your view on on not just the politics of it, but also the you know the the, the technical um, need for it.
3: Oh, well, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, when I was a associate minister of transport, I tried to get the ministry to do this work and Waka Kotahi. So I'm really pleased to see it get to this point. Um, I received advice from Waka Kotahi that uh, the law changes weren't needed, that there was possible to pilot, um, you know, a more empirical approach to this. So what happens now or up until now is people debate about theoretical changes for years and years and years, and they get, you know, sort of everyone has input into them, and maybe they never happen, or if they do happen, they're real compromise options. And most transport planning doesn't proceed on the basis of evidence. And so, being able to make low cost, quick changes as part of the consultation mm. is a really um, great innovation in how we can do better street design basically mean, it and, seems and to have got
1: wrapped up into into cultural war issues though in New Zealand very very I mean I, I know it is it's true elsewhere but particularly here though it just seems to be all about politics as opposed to um making adequate adequate and safe provision I mean there was a slightly half-assed piece on on morning report about this this morning about the propensity for New Zealanders to ride bikes but then feel as though it's actually unsafe to ride them to work and and that you know we know from other places particularly you know london is a very good example although it's nowhere near as steep as wellington for example but the provision of safe safe you know it's about safety you know provision of, of, of feeling safe on a bike makes a gigantic difference
3: absolutely and look so this is stuff that we've known for about 15 mm. years at, at least i mean as long as i've been in the profession and um we do need to make rule changes and law changes that make it clear that the hierarchy of priority on the street is the safe and efficient movement of people and goods for example over the storage of personal property yeah
1: but are there um, are there any special requirements uh, you know are there is is it any any way valid to say as i was as i heard on the awareness this morning uh, New Zealand is far too spread out. Uh, you know, we've got lots of car trips. Um, people prefer their cars. New Zealand's not appropriate as a bicycling nation. I just don't really buy that.
3: No, that's but, not I, true but what all. do you think? That's just the myth of that's been said for many years. And what Simeon Brown from National his press release is just classic, like, this is the way things are, therefore, this is how they must always be, and this is the best it could be. And that's just like a default conservative approach, no interest in understanding how things could work better, or how mm. they could achieve our values and the outcomes we desire of course, his, as a community.
1: And of course, his his, his uh, seat is fed by or is, you know, is fed by quite wide roads, partly because they have the gigantic concrete strip down many of the main ones that used to take the trams all the way out to Howick. Oh, yeah, that's you know, right. wouldn't that make a great bike lane? Wouldn't it actually make a great tramway? But, uh, you know, th- 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 there is these, there is these it it is a kind of chinatown type discussion
3: oh but... yeah 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 we're we're still, we're like back we're like 20 mm. years behind everywhere else but what's in, in the politics question i mean bernard you might be right but i've seen some interesting like basically the public and business reaction the retail reaction is the same everywhere and that is histrionic opposition to any proposed changes to remove car parks to close streets to enable more pedestrians or cycling or bus priority and um this just happened in the uk over the last few years mm. with the low traffic neighborhoods and people were out, i mean in utrecht when they um were developing cycleways already with a cycling culture mm. not that long ago the civil servant responsible for the cycleways network was getting death threats So,
1: and lovely and lovely Utrecht. I find that you know, I can that seems hard to believe, but surprising.
3: But I guess the point is is that somehow this this is a very emotional thing for people. Um, Mm. they've been you know sold for many decades on the idea that the car is freedom and a status symbol. And although we have direct evidence of that not working, and huge numbers of car trips in urban areas are very short distances, but if you say to most people, um, do you think children should be able to walk and cycle to school? Do you think it's a good thing they're all being dropped off in SUVs? Uh, the vast majority of New Zealanders, no matter how they vote, would mm. say, oh, yeah, kids should be walking in
1: cycles. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: So, so, I, so- I actually, the, 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 it seems like once you have the courage to actually implement this stuff and people see it working it wins elections despite the predominance of the media to report the opposition and the opposition being extremely inflamed Mm. it's not a majority Uh, most people are pretty open-minded most people do want healthier safer more environmentally friendly options for getting around their city they're more affordable as well so it's really it's like something that ticks all the boxes and weirdly I mean, it would actually make it easier for commercial vehicles and other types of trips that have to be yep. by car, but like for people who are suffer from disabilities, not all people with disabilities can actually use a car, but those who do need to rely on a car are better off once you don't have all of those other able-bodied people mm-hmm. using the cars, creating so, the congestion and taking so, up all the car so, parking.
0: So, so I'm curious about how it's done, because in some places it has been done. You know, the, the initial opposition was intense and... There was some politician or some accident of history or some clever idea that somehow got it in and once it was in people gone oh, oh the world didn't end actually it's mm-hmm. sort of better
3: over <laughs> time know? over time and it's already happening in christchurch so post earthquake you know admittedly christchurch is very car oriented in some ways but they've done some really good separated cycleway networks right across the city and what's interesting is um i talked to some of the contractors putting one in a few years ago and they said five years ago, if you told people we're putting in a cycleway in a street, they'd be really upset. And now they're like, oh, that's great. I was thinking of buying an e-bike because the more complete you make the network, the more people will choose to use alternative modes of transport. And then the more people can see it working. Yeah. I was flabbergasted
1: being away from London, Julianne, for a couple of years and then going back recently, just how superb, or the, sorry, in that two years, the improvement of of the division in the roads between cars and uh, and bikes had made it just unbelievably much easier and safer to blatter around town on a bicycle.
3: Well, I understand that miserable. Boris
0: Johnson is looking for a new job.
3: Oh, and, yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> so maybe we bring him out here. That's the one oh, thing I agree with it. him on, but he, he's yeah. still not my choice for...
3: Ambassador Oddly. <laughs>
1: Ju- my Julian, choice. may I ask you a contemporary political or daily political question? Because I, I, I don't particularly care about this topic in a sense that it did seem to be just one grumpy guy in the Herald, but I was very struck by the Prime Minister's comments about uh, the difficulties of suddenly having staff when you go into Parliament. And I was actually worried a little bit that she almost sounded passive aggressive in the way that she was referring to this person. But how did you how did you manage when you went in and had to form an office and hire staff? I mean, is it difficult? Is that do you are you unhappy with the culture of Parliament? Um,
3: I'm I'm not <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> the the debating chamber is definitely the most unprofessional environment I've ever been in. I was elected to parliament quite a long time ago, over 10 mm. years ago. Mm. When I was elected, uh, the male to female ratio of MPs was was very different. I mean, there was only about 30% female MPs. I was one of four female MPs under the age of 40 with the mm-hmm. Prime Minister Nikki Kaye and my colleague Holly Walker. Um, there was no support. It was a it was the second beginning of the second term of a national ed government, and there was Um, you know I was just given you need to hire an EA and I had no idea how to do that Um, and I it was you know you were kind of thrown into it but since then there's been a lot of developments with parliamentary services being there and then uh, it's also different when you're a minister Um, Mm -hmm. ministerial services which is from DIA come in it was very awkward trying to um, hire staff and uh, because I didn't get to set their salary or make a decision about that somehow ministerial services so do you do you do
1: when, when you're running your staff in parliament and they're working under this parliamentary um organization do you do their um one-on-ones and their and their goals or are they done by the
3: so initially um there was it was just like up to me i could hire whoever i wanted and there was no sort of third party involved mm. and then over time uh, over each term there have been you know, um, now Parliamentary Services is part of the process for human resources. They they will actually receive the um, uh, job applications, send them letters, set up the interviews. I get to make the decision, but um, it will be a Parliamentary Services person who's yeah. doing that. So so, so hell, that they do... get feedback from me because practically speaking, I'm the I'm the client, I guess. Hmm. Um, but i've never had a problem but um you know i think probably the difficulty in in any um in any place of employment and but particularly in politics is that you know some people are uh not very self-aware and um maybe not you is not alcohol a pro- problem? things there? out on other people around them or um you yeah. know don't sort of reflect on their part and things and um get into conflicts with other mm. people in their own team or you know outside their team is it, is
1: it also it, but it also must be it's, it must be intense I mean it literally I mean I know it's I know the beehive is not the whole thing but the place literally is a bit of a hive is, is alcohol a big factor as well Julianne and people's behavior
3: um I I don't know I mean not not from I don't really drink so uh not for me um but and I'd say the greens are like quite um maybe quite different than other parties um and I can't, I can't comment on what's going on in labor or national. But I, think, I think, oh, I think it is a very difficult problem to resolve. And the Greens supported the the Francis review and the proposed changes. But ultimately, um, it comes down to the people who are coming into this place mm. as politicians and the and the attitudes and values and experience they're bringing. And maybe people do need more training on how to be good employers or how to work together. Um, and
0: and colleagues. Juliana, I'm just curious. You've been there over a period where Parliament has become more diverse. There are more a high percentage of women, a high percentage of Maori and Pacifica, and people from uh, um, first generation migrant backgrounds. And you know, except the, in culture- the
3: National party. party.
1: Except. For the- oh, so you yeah. are, that's,
3: <laughs> see, that's see. I are 25% <laughs> it. On really you. makes a difference.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm curious. You know you've been here ten years. Uh, what would you do to make it a friendlier, more productive working environment that actually was more effective at you know representing people and getting good policy made and all of that?
3: Oh, jeez. You didn't brief me on this, so I don't have all of it <laughs> in hand. Um,
0: you must have thought about it quite a lot.
3: Uh, yeah, I've, 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 I tend to think more like how do we get the institutions to deliver our mm-hmm. policy? That's what I mainly think about now. Mm-hmm. How do I get NZTA and MOT and those sorts of institutions to actually implement our policy? And then, I, I mean, Parliament, I think it's getting better. I think the diversity probably makes it better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but... Um I I'm a really staunch supporter of MMP. I think MMP is really important and I think it works really well. But the way that we have it in New Zealand and maybe this means some changes to like the sort of Westminster system. We still have a leader of the opposition and the opposition like some of those all it's like we have a first past the post system with MMP and mm-hmm. um That's you know so maybe we we need to look at at how to change that so that because uh, I think it's really MMP makes it easy for voters and the parties can hold MPs accountable and develop the uh, platform um, you know people voting for it, you can see in local government it's a huge barrier to turnout that people don't know what these people actually stand for unless they're mm-hmm. affiliated with
0: and the often party. we find out after they've been elected yeah, exactly. what they actually think and and actually I'm quite worried about these council elections coming up where there seems to have been a low number of people put themselves forward as candidates and lots of slightly ugly noises from the ground-swell-y, um uh you know, anti-mandate brigades who are very politically active and looking for buttons to, to hammer. And um, one of the risks here, particularly in this reshaping streets issue, in fact, you could argue a lot of our problems in New Zealand are problems that have to be solved at a local government level as much as at a mm-hmm. central government level. Uh, how much of a problem is the uh, turnout and the very non-diverse um, uh, uh, number of councillors and mayors that we have up and down the country?
3: I, I think that it, it's been getting slightly more diverse, but I my my I don't there's a whole other discussion about local mm-hmm. government. I have very strong opinions. I think Excellent. it needs more funding uh devolved from central government, from general taxation that's progressive. Uh, I think it needs more representatives in most places and it needs a more um uh you know more democratic electoral system. So default STV, if not MMP. Um it's, it's it's it's, I mean way. I but I'm just going by like yeah. what's delivered Freiburg in Baden-Württemberg, Germany, which is um, you know, uh a a wonderful green city. So obviously I think that that system's working really well for them. And they they have many more representatives, but they're not full time. And then the council as a whole elects some like deputy mayors who are kind of like ministers, um, and they have a lot of devolved funding from the state and from the federal government. Um, And so they're able to really make consequential decisions. And I think it makes it much, they also have like youth seats and, you know, seats that are set aside for specific um, underrepresented groups. And I think all of that makes for a much more a system that's easier for voters to engage with and for citizens to engage with, but residents of the city, um, but also more rewarding because the council is making really meaningful decisions about infrastructure and about
1: Services. It seemed to me, so, Julian, just watching this today, that and, I, and somebody that Bernard and I both know and quite like, although he has some fairly repellent views in certain respects, but a, a lot of the sort of heat that I was seeing was, uh, oh, there's a, not, not just a democratic deficit, but people just don't believe there's democracy anymore because we've gone away from one person, one vote, which we'll get into in a separate day one day. But it seems to me that this is actually a really good and potentially healthy wake-up call. To say if we've if we've got a crappy turnout and, to, and both of people and of candidates this time to say hey we are doing really important democratic shifts including the the idea of Maori wards and so on why aren't more people participating that's actually a, there's a, actually a really good positive thing here to say gosh maybe we're not doing it. rather than just say it's all it's all negative it, you know it, we can learn from this.
3: Yeah, I maybe and, a... and given the Three Waters and the p- big planning reform, mm. arguably the review of local government should have happened before. That. Correct.
1: Correct. Um,
3: did, did you read Bernard's really...
1: piece did you read Bernard's piece on um, Three Waters this week, Karen? No, I haven't. Karin, sorry. It's I, been... I saw
3: it. I saw you tweet about it. Sorry, Bernard, I've been sick and
1: had can't Yeah, on the show without reading of uh, he writes. But I, would reckon, no. I reckon it's one of the most of of Sanguine, sensible, and intelligent pieces about three waters, which I think is really, really important. And I just I just feel as though it's not been well enough explained, both politically, but also in the media. And I thought Bernard did a did a fabulous job of that using the using the Auditor General's report as a kind of stepping off point.
0: Thank you, Peter. That's that's good. i am b- gonna buy some um, primetime TV ads.
1: No, just I'll come on and say
0: how fabric. Just, you just are. talk to which would be good. Julian, thank you very much for coming on. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for being on again, and we we went we straight into some really interesting areas, and I think they are areas that we can dive even deeper to into in future podcasts. That'd be great. thanks,
1: thanks Julian. Really thank you very much. You. Thank you.
0: And and now it's time for Peter's.
1: Well, I don't know, Bernard, because and I've clearly pissed goal. off a couple of people here, and I frankly I'm a little bit pissed off with some of our some of our guests because. I'm not going to take kind of lazy crap about how journalists uh, always make assumptions or do this. Yes, I try to have a little bit of banter and a little bit of humour with you, and I will continue to do that. But we are not sitting here making assumptions and pretending we know what we're talking about necessarily. And I often make a point of that. And it's not faux. I really don't know what I'm talking about. So anyway, my two favourite stories, one of which I would have done last week, was the, um, and I'm sure we probably have all seen it, was the French, French astrophysicist who tweeted the picture of a slice of chorizo, And said it was actually a piece, a a picture of (laughs) space from the from the from the web web telescope, which is possibly one of the silliest and wittiest stories that I've ever seen. And what I loved about it was that he apologized for doing it, rather than just saying, you know, we're all morons, and here's a piece (laughs) of chorizo, or or, ha ha ha. No, that was a
0: brilliant story, and it was there was something French about it
1: too. That was something. well, Well, of course, there's something Spanish about it, but I like a French guy. Tweeting a piece of Spanish um, sausage. It did make me hungry too when I when I read that. story. Well, it's also and it's also you know it wasn't he wasn't being rude with the sausage you know anyway no. the other the other story that I thought for those those of us on the uh, on the panel with um, double cab Utes was was one in the Atlantic was, was this week, bemoaning the end of the um, stick shift, but, um, manual transmission. Now you know I've I've spent a lot of time in my life with manual transmissions and believe that only. You know, only real men drove cars with manual transmissions, preferably column changed, um, three up and three up and one back on the. And and did it have to wheel. have one of those metal gates that went clickety clack? Click, well, that's click. a Ferrari. I mean, that's a Ferrari. Oh, wait, yes, uh, well, yeah, actually, I do have a Ferrari just out the back burner, as you know. Oh, Us sure. journalists who make assumptions are incredibly <laughs> successful. But this is a story in the Atlantic, uh, and it says that in 2000s in the U.S., more than 15% of new and used cars sold uh, in the United States came with stick shifts by 2020 that figure has dropped to 2.4% wow. and mercedes and volkswagen are talking about dropping them entirely which of course is also part of the um shift to electric vehicles but it's also for all vehicles now we so the the you know the column change uh, is is dead already pretty much uh, and i'm afraid our um, beloved stick shift is going to be finished too so it will all be tiptronic Tiptronic, yeah. I and remember. to t- you. Yeah, yeah, no. boo t- in this case.
0: It's right. The, the holding Kingswood with the with the with the column. Oh exchange. yeah. Fantastic. And the yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, only Hoons no. drive.
0: drive Hoons, and there we go. And that and has that been. It's the a, another fantastic weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey with co-host Peter Bell. Lovely to see you all. Thank you to our guests. We'll be back again next Friday. Kakita, I know everyone.
1: Thank you, Bernard. Thanks everybody. Even the rude people.